Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The transfer window is closed, but the transfer window podcast is very much open for business. I'm Henry McRae and I'm joined by our star January signing from Barcelona, the one and only Graham Hunter, along with podcast regulars Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. Keeping three of them on topic is a bit like what Tom Waits described as catching chickens on a beach. But over the next hour and a bit, we'll look at all the big clubs in England with the latest news and views on City, United, Arsenal, Liverpool and Chelsea, amongst others. But since we have Graham with us, we begin at La Liga, where Barcelona broke their transfer record for the second consecutive window, while Real Madrid didn't spend a single euro. So, Graham, get us up to speed with the two Spanish giants. Yeah, completely diverse um, currents. Um, if you look at Football Club Barcelona, listen, also, I want to you know, shape up and, and say that when you last left me, H., I didn't estimate that Barcelona would spend uh, the amount of money they needed to spend in this window because that wasn't part of their strategy. They did want Coutinho. They thought it could be done in the summer. He he got done and he's debuted. And as you point out, um, Henry, it's uh, it's another record. It's not as uh, knee-jerk as the Dembele deal was um, in that they palpably believed that Coutinho was the right man. They accurately forecasted that he wanted to, to join them. How they knew that, I've got no idea. Wink. <laughs> um, but I would point out that um, it's interesting in, in several ways. One, Coutinho wanted this to happen. And, and I don't mean that for Liverpool fans listening uh, to, to make it sound as if he, he you know kicked and spluttered and babied his way out of the club. He showed... Um, an attention to detail and an intensity in the period where he was ordered to remain at Anfield that um, clearly benefited Liverpool's possibilities of um, at least finishing the Champions League slots at the end of the season. I thought that in professional terms, if everybody accepts that very often even good professionals will try and wriggle out of contracts um, and continue is neither the, the first or the 101st or the 100,000th um, he wanted a way, he'd made his mind up, Liverpool got something out of him in terms of the way that footballers currently behave. I thought he's done not badly out of all of this. Um, if you're diehard red, you might feel otherwise. But he said to Barcelona now, he said to Barcelona, I, I, I'm, I've made my um, efforts for you. And it changed their strategy in that um, they accepted that he was saying it's far more important for me to come now than in the summer because I want nothing to overshadow the World Cup. They changed the strategy and bought a player who cannot perform for them in the Champions League. So in terms of the outlay uh, right now that they needed to commit to, um, in terms 
of the degree to which Liverpool put a premium on it because he was leaving the mid-season. It, it's cost them more. He's come at a time when everybody knows if they've been listening to your podcast that um, top managers, top directors of football, top footballers, even let's throw in there um, well-qualified, intelligent football agents want a player or a manager to move in late May or early June so that they can acclimatise if it's a new city or a new country or a new language or a new football language. There is there is time in the laboratory to, to cook things right and uh, what you get is lovely crystal meth at the end. We can take that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> can I reference the breaking bad, I presume? Okay. Or the football equivalent. Please, kids, <laughs> don't try that at home. Graham, can I ask you what the reaction in Spain, both from supporters and, most importantly, from what is a very, very critical and sometimes harsh media to the fact that Barcelona have broken their transfer record twice in the space of six months and two windows, while Real Madrid are idling both uh, in fourth place in the Liga and also not spending any money. And there must be surely some kind of uh, repost coming from Florentino Perez. Yeah, t- no, I take your point. If you want to look at the media only, um, Ian, then there hasn't been what you might have expected, what what you could have guaranteed if it was a summer where Madrid had posted poor footballing results and a summer went by with very little spending. At that time, there would have been outright hysteria, sort of Orson Welles' War of the World-style hysteria, um, with people running from the capital in, in fear, had, had Madrid not broken the bank several times. Because it's mid-season, because Zidane has turned up eight trophies in two years, the focus, and the critical focus, has been on performance, has been on previous planning. Uh, the front pages have been dominated not by why isn't Harry Kane here now, or why wasn't Coutinho bought um, it, it, for Real Madrid instead of for Barcelona in January, the front pages have been dominated by how the hell did Madrid lose to Villarreal? How the hell did they get knocked out of the cup by Leganes? What's wrong with the players? Why is Zidane get blah, blah, blah? So there's been enough of meat to take the, the sometimes harsh, sometimes hysterical media away from saying to Real Madrid, demanding of Real Madrid, the way out of this is to spend. Your point about the intrigue was, was clearly... Um, Increased, whereby, if people don't know this, the, the, the young Spanish, obviously Basque, uh, keeper at an athletic club, uh, Kepa, uh, was out of contract this summer, uh, was clearly fancied by uh, the club director, particularly Jose Angel Sanchez, who's the, the, the deal maker, the money man, um, the marketing man. Florentino Perez has long set a policy that he wants to have a younger squad, that he wants to have more high-quality Spaniards in that squad, if possible, hence last summer, the purchase of Ceballos and um, Borja and Llorente and Vallejo and, and Teo Hernandez, count him as Spanish or French as you wish, um, dual nationality. And therefore, Kepa was a big deal. He could have been bought for very little. His contract hadn't been renegotiated for a long time. It was running down there for the buyout clause. It was very, very cheap indeed. And everybody took it to be a done deal. Just like when Barcelona during the summer went all the way down the line with Inigo Martinez and then didn't buy him, there had been a good deal of preparatory work coming uh, behind it when Zidane took to a press conference and said, I don't want a keeper. I don't need a keeper. I want some respect shown to my current squad. And he, you know, it was a, it was a Marco Materazzi moment in, in, in 
terms of his relationship with Florentino <laughs> Perez, which um, is, isn't broken forever, but we Florentino's chest hurt for a little bit, just in that breastbone where the forehead connects. Can you picture it, folks? Yeah, see, see if you can see what it is now. Um, and basically what happened was Zidane stamped his foot in the floor, either for A, select your option, people, um, good footballing reasons and a way to prop up Kayla Navas, who um, utterly did deserve the respect of being left alone in goals for Madrid, given that he's one of only about three players who performed to the level this all throughout this season. Or B, as some speculated, uh, Luka Zidane um, is hovering in fourth position in the goalkeeping ranks at Real Madrid. And the coach didn't want his boy prejudiced by another new keeper coming in. Cho- choose your option as, as you see fit. His partial answer, Ian, is one, um, there was no business planned uh, for January. Two, uh, there had been a reasonably big investment in youth talent and there was no deals in place to bring in a superstar in January. And three, they are saving up money. They are trying to find a way to go absolutely uh, bat crazy um, this summer with a top to bottom regeneration of the squad. So that that was my suspicion, Graham, that there was a, a white elephant in the room wearing its uh, Madrid kit. Because we know that Florentino, he can't resist the Galactico. Um, you know, it's it's normally them breaking transfer records. They've been very quiet, relatively speaking. I get your point about the investment in youth and Spanish players, but um, everyone uh, in terms of the uh, the football's chattering classes and you know what I mean by that is it the agents and sporting directors and everyone else are kind of like cowering, waiting for Madrid to exercise a financial muscle. Well, Zidane, back to what you said, Ian, just briefly. When he said, um, I don't want to keep her, he never, he never said Kepa, and, but everybody knew it was Kepa. I don't want to keep her, and the move died, and Kepa renewed at Athletic. So his, his buyout clause is now huge. He's got a long-term deal there, blah, blah, blah. Zidane went in that same press conference and told us, you know, it might be the case that we might need players in the summer. He said, he used a phrase, he used a damning phrase when you're talking about the, the chattering classes of football and how they're considering Real Madrid. He went, you know, we haven't really signed anybody for two years. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that might come as a big surprise to the guys that they did sign over the last <laughs> two years, including Morata the summer before, um, Casemiro being brought in, Vallejo and Ceballos and Llorente. You know, Hold on a second, fella. And I think it tells you about the dislocation between Zidane the coach and Zidane the previous um, horse whisperer who was the director of football, football who brought, who helped bring in Bale, who brought in Casemiro the first time, who brought in Varane, who brought in Isco. So your point is echoed by Zidane in terms of, right, now that I'm not the director of football and the coach, what's actually happening here, folks? Well, I think uh, they're certainly embracing themselves in Stamford Bridge for, for potential bids. I think, in fact, conversations have already taken place with representatives of, of Aidan Hazard and Thibaut Courtois on possible and whether or not they would be willing to move to Real Madrid. Harry Kane continually comes up. I think Madrid, we know, uh, are lacking a you know 30 goal season, 25 goal season striker, um, even though they've got uh, the goals of Ronaldo. Uh, but Benzema, is a, is, his career's fading rather than you know, going up the way, so I, I just think that you know, we, Madrid will be the story in the next transfer window. Having, as you said yourself, Graham, been very quiet transfer wise in the last two seasons. It's true, and and you need to, if we're if the four of us are being realistic, you must a point out that as Zidane keeps saying, he's not 
sure from week to week and month to month, never mind beyond the summer, whether he'll be wanted at Real Madrid. He's not saying things haven't gone well, therefore I'm automatically going to be sacked or I'm going to move on. But he's utterly realistic that if things continue with the sickly hue over the last you know, six, seven, eight weeks, then for one reason or other, he won't be there. He definitely wants to stay. His contract was extended recently. There is a hardcore of the really important footballers at the club who absolutely do want him to stay. Whether that's healthy or not is a possibility that they're looking for another coach. And everybody can be crystal clear that the first choice would be Pochettino. And as you and Duncan talked about the last time I was on this um, podcast, Neymar is 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 a long-term um, objective for Florentino Perez, given that you know he was at the Bernabeu training as a kid. They thought they had him. It's an almost identical case with Mbappe. They scouted him. They took the big risk. They brought him over. They thought, just like with Arjun Robben being showed round uh, Old Trafford on the training ground by Sir Alex Ferguson and then disappearing off to Chelsea, they, jet, they thought they had him inculcated that he was a guarantee, that he owed something to them, that his loyalty had been, not bought, but had been um, attained. And they then, when he was moving um, from Santos, they thought that they were in poor position with the club, with the agent, with the society. The Neymar thing is is something that will will be a thorn in the side of Florentino Perez until he's playing in, in a white shirt at, at the Bernabeu. And um, therefore... To your points about the massive um, outflow of expenditure to regenerate the squad and the fact that Benzema's at risk and several other players are at risk, um, you, you must add the possibility of Pochettino being on that buying list and, and the certainty that they will try their backsides off to make Neymar come in the summer and, in my opinion, fail. How Why do you think they'll fail? It's, there's no buyout clause. I'm absolutely certain of that. I, I'm not claiming to have read the contract, but if you listen to the people who matter um, in in those who participated in the move of Neymar to Paris Saint-Germain, and if you look at the ethos that the owners of that club have, if you look at the way in which uh, those owners understand that it is often in the elite player they want to attract. It's initially a seller's market in the, it, the things that attract absolute elite players to Paris Saint-Germain will be, A, the money, go all the way down to X, the money, after which the chance that one day Paris Saint-Germain win the Champions League, there is, you can market that if you're a player or an agent as, I'd like to be some. I'd like to be part of a new project and set new historic, all that kind of tosh, and therefore it is a it is a seller's market. But once they get them in there, they want to lock them up. They, the the manacles may be diamond encrusted, but those owners at Paris Saint Germain do not want it to be easy for elite players once captured to leave. And therefore, how do you how do you persuade them to lose their dignity? to say, um, okay, we had Neymar, but we lost him after a season, irrespective of whether he's been stomping about and nicking the ball off Cavani or burning Cavani's uh, top man suit in the dressing room as a prank. The, the long and short of it is there is nothing that um, Romadid can offer Paris Saint-Germain in terms of cash that they don't have a thousand times over. And if Neymar goes on strike, do you think the owners of Paris Saint-Germain are going to say, Alison, ah, you, you bent our will, 
in the space of six petulant weeks. That's fine, actually. <laughs> I don't know what we were doing buying in the first place. Off you go with our blessings. I don't think so. Or throw Cristiano Ronaldo the other way. Plus what? Of... Plus what? Plus cash? Okay, Plus 200 so million. You know, it was interesting. Duncan's take, last time I was on, was one of the most interesting takes I'd had on Cristiano Ronaldo since, really honestly, since he moved to Madrid. The idea that he wants to play till he's 40, that maybe there's more life in the old dog, that he'll be scoring goals at a certain rate, blah, blah, blah. But if you're Paris Saint-Germain and you're looking at that asset and what it will do for you above and beyond marketing credibility, or power, not credibility, he still carries immense power. Does he give you uh, the sporting uh, facets which Neymar gives you? I, I don't think that's something that you can bank on. He might, but the odds, his current performance, his age, the change in what kind of player he's become over the last three, four years while still staying very successful, the type of team you've got to build around him, the egos involved around him. Wow. Look, hey, you know, KCO, as Messi says, what do I know? That That's my, I think Madrid will try and fail this summer. It's a long way between now and the end of August, fellas, but that's my proposition. If I, if I had to ask you, Graham, Paris Saint-Germain spent 418 million euros last summer. Do you see Real Madrid surpassing that this summer? With an outlay. With a change of coach on top. An outlay, yeah. Gross spend. <laughs> can, can we get Daniel Levy on this, on this call, uh, <laughs> Because there, yeah. there lies... Good point. Good there point. lies the entirety of your answer. Um, they're really big tickets. If if I'm right, and let's say that'll happen once every eight or ten years, um, if I'm right, they don't get Neymar. So let's strike three hundred million off, you know, Real Madrid's potential outlay. They will, they will, without question, make a serious effort for Harry Kane for every reason that all three of you and the listeners know already. They are desperately short of goals. It's time that the squad was challenged. It's time that there was fresh blood. Um, he is the number one property in terms of available strikers. Available, that's the wrong word. Emerging strikers. Strikers who are at the peak in terms of their um, age, profile, scoring rate, experience. It's him above anybody else for Florentino Perez. Again, do I think he's gettable because of his family situation and the degree to which he'll be bombarded by people at Spurs about the prospects of staying, the, the, the money that... Um, certainly I would imagine will be offered, in fact I believe strongly will be offered to him and the prospects by Chelsea in trying to say don't go abroad it's not the right time for your wife and your, your young family if that, if that is a deal that they're going to get through, could they, could they reach that outlay in general between what else they'll buy plus a successful purchase of Harry Kane I think you might, you might be on the money there do I think that they'll persuade Harry Kane to come and go through that tortuous process of trying to get a price from Daniel Levy I think they'll fail on that too because of Daniel Levy, because of Harry Kane's situation, I think he'll be tempted and they'll say no, is, is my opinion Duncan therefore if, you, if we project ahead and say what deals will they be able to do compared to what they want to do, I think they won't spend that much money, no I think Paris Saint-Germain and also there, it's emerging that Real Madrid find that they have limits compared to Manchester City and to Paris Saint-Germain and to, to agree to Manchester United who don't have the same situation as City and Paris Saint-Germain but do seem to have deeper pockets than Real Madrid or will it spend it differently? 
Okay, well, that's an interesting stuff on Spain um, with the uh, expert voice of Graham Hunter, obviously, who is not always with us, but it was always in our hearts. Um, so the, the window was shut, uh, and, you know, while Real Madrid might not have spent much, there was certainly a lot of activity in the English Premier League. How do we how do we wrap up this uh, this window, Duncan? What are your thoughts? Well, look, I think you've got to say just look at the spending, and um, we've got a series of records there. Uh, 1.9 billion for the season from the Premier League, um, which is a half billion more than they've ever done before. Record January, 430 million, which is almost double the sort of the crazy January of 2011 when Andy Carroll and Fernando Torres um, exchanged pass and helicopters and, and crash landed at their Sa- and, and saddles clubs. and saddles we should say <laughs> and saddles <laughs> um, so you and uh, it's we've there's some interesting things in that the, the, a lot of the spendings happened uh, with the big six clubs um, I think Deloitte have some figures saying 62% of the, the spend in this windows happen from the big six clubs, which tells you that although the bottom end are trying to buy players to stay in the division, you're also seeing the top end in an almighty scramble to retain their Champions League places. And I think the the biggest sort of highlight of the window of the of the last two windows is Manchester City. And that um, the their purchase of Imeric Laporte uh, took the spending or the commitment to transfer fees um, and Pep Guardiola's time at the club, which is just 19 months to over a half billion pounds, which is um, not far off the total amount of money that Sir Alex Ferguson spent on transfers in 21 seasons at Manchester United, to put it into um, one form of context. To be fair on that, Duncan, obviously the, the inflation in terms of the market in the last, even just the last six months, never mind the last four years, um, is something which you can't really compare Alec Ferguson's time, you know, in his first, I'd say, 14, 15 years at Manchester United in terms of spending. But um, I take your point. I mean, obviously now City have the most expensive defence ever in the history of football after the, uh, the acquiring report for £57 million. Although, Given that they were previously willing to pay twenty five million for Johnny Evans, um, who is twenty nine, almost thirty, and instead they've got a twenty three year old French international um, for fifty seven, they can probably almost justify that. Although I would, if I were Manchester City, uh, and it wasn't the current regime of Bigeristan and Soriano, uh, throw in the um, caveat of one. Elia Mangala, who moved to £45 million uh, not so long ago and is now on loan at Everton. So uh, just because you spend a lot of money... In the way you... It's really interesting listening to you too because in in the way that you're charting things, at least from from a perception point of view, Mangala was was bought at a time when City were still, I think, looking really quite, if not green... Agent-driven. They were naive, yeah. There, I agree there was a degree of naivety. There was a degree to which, uh, whether it was uh, Mendes or Jurapshin or whoever it was, seemed to have more of an influence than 
the eyes and ears and calculation of, of the football department at City, which seems to have changed. And if you look at Mangala now, uh, uh, retrospectively, and you look at Laporte, City are, are definitely getting a footballer that will that is that needs to be De Gea-fied. You know, De Gea was a goalkeeper, Laporte is a centre-half, but Laporte arrives in England needing to go through the same process as the United keeper did, which will be accustomed, becoming accustomed to what is and isn't permitted in the Premier League compared to La Liga. His top body, he will definitely need to be a lot more muscular, a lot more tough in terms of what he understands, what kind of treatment he understands he's going to get as part and parcel of normal Premier League games. I'm not talking about the spate of recent you know, idiotic tackles on Manchester City players. I'm talking about the way in which De Gea had to get a mental adjustment, a physical adjustment, and then become dominant. Now, Laporte will have to do that. That's for sure. But he's, you know, an ordered, intelligent, passing footballer in a way that Mangala is... Um, his his abilities were far more, and I think remain, and, and I actually put a, a reasonable weight on, on what he can do within a set of tram lines. I saw Mangala at Valencia helping turn things right. He is about power and pace and athleticism, and it's not it's never been about calm on the ball and outstanding football brain. I'm not being rude about him, but I think it I think he's proven that over and over again. And in the right situation, in the right situation, I can see many coaches saying, I'll buy that player. The cost might have been wrong, but it was it was never going to be right for an era in which Pep Guardiola was the, the coach for Manchester City. Whereas Laporte has all the ingredients and definitely has the vision and the brain, but will be a project. There's no question that they're not getting <coughs> in the article. Well, my point, Graham, was, that I was yeah, going on to make as well there was that I think Laporte represents an unusual amount of value in a very inflated state of the market because at 23 yes it seems expensive for centre half but then John Stones was 52 million as well but City are now doing what you've referred to Real Madrid wanting to do and that is to rejuvenate an ageing squad and this is one of Guardiola's first things that he said when he when he got to Manchester City if not before he even got there um, to Begaristan that the general average age of this team and the squad was far too old that they needed yeah. to buy younger players needed to buy players who would buy into the Guardiola philosophy of how to play spot on. Who, yeah. who could be coached who were and, and young enough to learn put it that way not people who think well I'll do what I like out on the pitch and that's what they're doing so it's, my point is I think I think despite what looks like it is, you know, a, a sort of very luxurious investment in terms of defenders in the last six months at Manchester City. I think possible a port represents value in, in what has become a quite idiotic period for football in terms of fees. Well, particularly I given that the first deal they wanted to do, I'll get out of the way, Duncan, it, it, it was Bonucci. Bonucci would have cost them a sum had they bought him from Juventus when they wanted to, not far short of what they sent in Laporte. And Bonucci looked like an absolute Rolls-Royce of a defender since. But once he moved within Serie A to a new environment, it was it was plain to see that Bonucci was very much a creature of his environment, far older, at the same age profile, a little bit older than Johnny Evans, which I think helps gives give weight to your idea about is there value in Laporte. Sorry, Duncan. No, I was just going to say, I don't think you can question that once you delete... Um, Nolito and Claudio Bravo from the Guardiola era purchases that City have bought very well. And everyone that they've bought has, um, has excluding those two, has improved 
by a considerable margin in the team, and we'd expect you'd expect to see Laporte, who, who by the way isn't a France international yet, still only an under twenty one international, highest level of international experience, uh, develop in the same way. And, and I think I mean, you you know Laporte far better uh, than I do, Graham. But the the word I have on him is that he his weakness will be the occasion of making an error, a quite significant error in the John Stones mould, and not particularly quick. Um, but I, you know, you know, you're you're right that that thing. All I want to say is, he knows that people around Deschamps are putting that word out about speed, whereas it's mm-hmm. it's charted by La Liga and by Athletic that in a sprint. He can be sprinting at the same speed as you expect of any striker, 33, 34, 35 kilometres an hour. People, people read into that about um, his, his, what would you guys call adelantación? How he reads and how, how, you know, when he's forced to react and sprint rather than how he reads things. Okay. And you, I think you used the phrase that's really good about if you're part of a sports family or you just like him, he's going to be taught. One of the things that Guardiola explains to all footballers over and over again until they can say it in their sleep is how he wants them to anticipate and to read. And that's something, Laporte's speed is going to be fine as long as he begins to read the game the way that Guardiola asks him to. But you're, I'll back you 100% that the, the slight ill feeling there is between Deschamps and Laporte, for what reason it's developed, I don't know, has resulted in a lot of people talking about his, his speed. And all I would say is athletically, that's not the case. Reading the game, I think that's maybe where it stems from. I, th- I think your point, Graham, on, on, on Laporte is very good. And it's kind of indicative of the way Guardiola works. He's prepared to compromise on elements of a player um, when he sees the, the fundamental parts that are, most, yeah. that are yeah. most important to his game plan. I, I, that's what he wants in his signings. And that's why he's, he will push Manchester City to spend heavily to get that individual player with the idea to bring him in and develop in, in his system and, and, the, and the whole being greater for having that, that right talent in there. I think you've got to look at Manchester City. Um, there is no uh, fear in their spending. Uh, the, the way they've accelerated it is, is, is quite incredible when you consider that the original sort of Abu Dhabi um, justification or... A strategy that they they said they put in place when they bought the club was to do the the, the kind of Chelsea model of heavy initial spending to get themselves on a on a level playing field with the competition, establish themselves as Premier League champion contenders, which they've done, and establish themselves as Champions League contenders, which they're still they're at that level now. They still got to win it, but they did all that spending, and they've now gone on to another level entirely. I mean, they're, they're the first summer. Under Guardiola, 231 million. This summer, 352 million. There isn't, there, there's a kind of sense coming out of City that, okay, we're doing this because we're worried about uh, the FFP2 that Ian introduced last week. And we want to get our signings in early. It's interesting when Guardiola was talked, was asked last uh, week about whether he almost had his perfect squad in place. And he, his response was very quickly to say, there's no such thing as a perfect squad. Um, you can expect your players to do well, and then they, they suddenly dip. You've always got to keep on improving. And also interesting that when they get an injury to Leroy Sani, which is unfortunate, um, 
But really, it's not putting him out for, for the course of the season. They, they expect to have him back in six weeks. And, and uh, Manchester City history with treating injuries this season has been that they've got most of them back quicker, far quicker than expected. Mm. The response is to go out and uh, offer £60 million for Riyad Mahrez um, as a reserve winger. Um, so if they are going to put a break on spending from a club level, I think there's going to be a fight involved with their coach um, when they tell the coach you're not going to get to have that degree of spending anymore because he's going to push and push and push for better players all the time. That seems to be I, his mentality. I absolutely love that, Duncan. But, you know, the, the market hasn't necessarily transfixed, transfixed me over the because of the degree of um, stupidity of spending you see in terms of um, last gasp or knee jerk around the, the mm. continent and, the, and some, sometimes the intelligence disparity between you know Germany and Spain and, and Italy and, and some of the Premier League where it's blunderbuss load the money on rather than you know do the planning in advance however that Mares moment if I was, you know, if, like, let's put United's result at um, Tottenham out of the. If I was part of the United coaching staff, or if I was one of the United players, or if I was Arsenal, who I think they face in the League Cup final, or okay, Basel might be a little bit strong. Guardiola's reaction to the loss of Sani at a time when Gabriel Jesus is out, and okay, imminently Guardiola says, I don't know exactly, but next three, four weeks, fine. But that the, you 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 portrayed one side of that coin: the fact that they're willing to spend so much money and make two a minimum of two separate bids for Mara <laughs> at a late stage in the market because Sani is injured. If I was any of the other opponents, I'd be looking at uh, Guardiola's mentality and saying, "Boy, he's really genuinely worried that one more upset or one bout of tiredness or." create a burnout over three, four weeks and they could be vulnerable. You know, that idea about so needing to, to, to make sure that um, Sonny's absence isn't, isn't, a, isn't, isn't, a, isn't a terrible loss to them um, and the means to which he was willing to revert. I thought that was absolutely fascinating, even once the market's closed. And, and I think he, he put a little drop of blood in the water. I, if I was anybody of the, of the ones who were going to be facing him or trying to hunt him down, Boy, would I have been encouraged. Especially, I, I as, especially as matters hasn't happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. well, I agree, but, but do you know what? I, I, I think the response to, and, you, and you, it's very important to include Gabriel Jesus in this, not just Sani, but Jesus as well. Um, the response was entirely natural. If you if you're in any walk of life and you work for an employer with pockets as deep as Abu Dhabi, and your job depends upon succeeding, otherwise you get sacked. And here I'm talking about not just Guardiola, Begeristan, Soriano as well. When something happens like that and you know you've got the financial clout to replace or replenish your squad in order to make sure that you achieve the success that you need to keep your job, then you do it. It's natural. They've got the money. It's not my money I'm spending. We just go out and get them. Now, they didn't get them, and I agree with you, blood in the water. There is a little bit, there's a little bit of smell of fear. We've come so far this season at Manchester City. We're on the cusp of winning the title. We're in the Champions League. We're in the Cup final. People are talking about quadruple. We could be legends. But hang on, two of our best players are injured. And, you know, all, of, might... those, all of those impulses, I agree with, I understand, and it's right. I, I'm, I'm talking about just a nuanced difference that, that he feels that the system so fundamentally depends on the type on pace, on pace. movement and pace and positional yeah. and beating players. 
beating players. It does. That, that it does. He, it, he clearly doesn't think the pillars are falling down and the walls are about tumbling. No, 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 no. But he's charting over those seven weeks. And going, he is. And, and at Barcelona, he, he went over and over and over again about that those killing fields of mid-March to mid-April when he said, irrespective of the trophy moments in finals in May when you lift things, that's, that's the time when all my squad must be not just fit, but firing on full cylinders physically and mentally and blah, 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 blah. And we saw, we, we talked about it before, how um, the Chelsea defeat in semi-final in his last season, the Bayern Munich falling over in, in two of the three semi-finals, one of in which they were just outplayed by a brilliant, brilliant performance. But he, he in his mind, he's going, whoa. The, 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 if we thought the last six weeks saw some grinded-out performances from City, the next seven could need more. I think he's... I, think, I don't... Not for a second am I, am I suggesting that people listening... They're not going to win things. But it, if I was a rival, I'd, I'd be interpreting A, the, the, the decision, and like Duncan says, B, the absence of Mahrez with, with pretty big enthusiasm. <laughs> I think the difference as well, though, uh, in Pep's career, both at Barcelona and in Bayern Munich, is that he's, he's now 18, 19 months into the job. He's realised that in England, you get away, or don't get away, but it is tolerated that you can fairly brutally take out a player at full tilt and cause him a serious injury. Yeah. And and it happens. Now, as I said, Jesus unlucky. Sani, a dreadful loss to the team because his pace and his creativity is central to everything that makes Manchester City take this season. If he gets one more, well he nearly they did will struggle. He, he nearly did yeah. that tackle on Diaz. Brian Diaz. Yeah, exactly. Six red cards at the one Ex- time. Exactly. So he's he's looking looking at he's looking at Manchester City as the sitting duck. Yeah. Everyone wants to kick them, and they will kick them because they'll get away with it. it. Doesn't happen in Germany as much. Doesn't happen in Spain as much. But it happens here. And if he loses one more, then he could be in trouble. Hence the Mares panic. Right, yeah. I think I think it, it's definitely rational from the perspective you're putting in. It's that the players are prepared to spend the money, so I'm going to spend it. And I think the other element there is he's been through three seasons at Bayern Munich where he's got into a similar position as he's got Manchester City to in, in England, which is a yeah. big early season league. And then he's watched the team yeah, deteriorate when it yeah. came down to the punch in the Champions League. Yeah, so and it right back in the first cup final, remember? Yeah. So, yeah, if you're Pep Guardiola, you're thinking, I've got the Premier League here as long as I get through the next Smashing few point. weeks. Smashing point, yeah. But really I've got a point. chance at the Champions League here, which yeah. is what they really want me to win. So push them and get the money and strengthen the squad and give myself better resources. Because he's right, he does have a... Although the, the spending is phenomenal, he does have a relatively thin squad of players that he trusts to put in that yeah. team. Yeah. And he hasn't been able to rotate them much because he doesn't trust to switch guys into positions. And, you know, we talked about bad tackles and, and injuries. And I think the biggest example, the one they got away with, was the De Bruyne tackle at, at Crystal Palace, which was horrendous. And, yeah. and De Bruyne would be out now if, if he'd had his foot planted when that tackle yeah. came in, which, which plays into a bigger story about refereeing in, in England, which is which is something we need to discuss in this podcast. Maybe once Hen- the out of Hen- the Henry, Henry, can I just make a point here to, to move us slightly on? And that is that, well, something that's admirable about Manchester City and Pep Guardiola is that 
he is solving the, the problems which we all knew they had, and that is in his defence, albeit he's doing it with with you know uh, magical amounts of money. But look at two of their supposed Premier League rivals and what they've done and spent in this window, um, who have a similar um, sort of basis of a very strong attacking philosophy, and that's Arsenal and Liverpool. Now Arsenal have bought but now spent more than £100 million on two strikers in the last two windows. Incredible that Lacazette bought for £52 million, a return of nine goals so far, it is not really worked out. They then make what I have described in this podcast before as a massive punt on um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who comes in uh, at £57 million in this window. Um, and uh, similarly, Liverpool, who have got the magical four, even without Coutinho, they, they still have a, an incredible attack, but they spend a record... Some for a defender, one defender, seventy-five million pounds. When actually they need a whole new defence, and you have to ask yourself, in terms of the spending, again, who's spending more wisely? Is Pep actually in, you know, putting together the most expensive defence in world football? He's doing that because he knows he's already got the attacking formation, and yet you've got Arsenal spending money on Mkhitaryan, well, effectively spending money on Mkhitaryan in terms of salary, and also on Aubameyang in terms of fee and salary basically bolster what is quite a creative a team but who are leaky at the back and it just seems to me that slightly strange that um, clubs can be so blindsided about where their, their deficiencies are that they'll spend a lot of money uh, like Arsenal have on attacking players when actual fact conceding goals um, as we saw in the dreadful defeat at Swansea is one of the biggest problems Yes you may make that point <laughs> and who would like to respond to it? So you're ducking that one Henry Oh, I mean, I don't have an opinion on any of this stuff. I just that's, link you lot together. And... Dirty lie that will ever be made. <laughs> ever. Well, what I was going to ask was, uh, before Ian moved this on, was really about uh, Leicester's side of the Mares um, uh, story and how they have now got an uh, extremely unsettled player on their hands for the rest of the season. When his head has been turned by the advances of Manchester City and yet he's now... Uh, sulking in the Leicester dressing room. Um, we don't often talk about clubs at tight side of the top six, but that's you know that's as a consequence of the transfer window. How's that likely to play out? Well, Cla- Claude Puel only needs to take a leaf out of the the Coutinho clock book because, irrespective of uh, you know that was my point at the beginning, irrespective of maybe how the most dedicated Liverpool fans are feeling about the loss of Coutinho, particularly in when after the City game. They produce performances where they can't broke. I mean, in the case of Swansea, it wasn't simply like Swansea were very good and outpressed them and defended very well. Liverpool looked bereft of solutions. So anybody who's feeling sore about Coutinho going, I understand. But, you know, the Mara's solution is to make the type of deal that the executives and, and Fenway must have backed and been involved in. But Klopp had to carry out face-to-face with Coutinho. The two different men, Coutinho and Mara's, but Mara's has come back from this um, oh, I haven't got my transfer before, and applied himself. It, even when he, if he, whether you call it sulking or dips, his his consistency of provision of assists and goals as a as a package, probably since he came to the league, I'd be really surprised how if, if there are many ahead of him, maybe even no more than one ahead of him in terms of goals and assists provided since Mares joined, made it to the Premier League. And as such, it's about making a pact, Henry, between them and saying, you know, if the right offer comes in the summer, you will definitely be able to go at our price. But 
show um, until then. Otherwise, we'll make you see out your contract. You know, prove yourself. Buck up and play. Do a Coutinho and look what it did for Coutinho. The messages to transmit are fairly simple. And and while you want to dip down the, the Premier League a little bit, and I'll, I'm going to get out of the way for, for Duncan to respond soon, it's, it strikes me, and in your point about Arsenal, that you, you, can, you can point at where we're at on that. Like it's just such an easy um, equation. Arsenal are building in a nervous system of decision-making because they've hired people consistently um, over the last six, eight months to show we realise that our structure has been too focused on Arsene Wenger, that it needs modernising, that some of the staff, some of whom have retired, some of whom have moved on, needed replacing, that the same thing you do to a team just pick an analogy, the Alex Ferguson idea about rebuilding a playing team. Well, backroom staff, uh, directorial staff, that needs to happen too if people aren't to get sated or lazy. And when you build a structure, and Arsene Wenger is, is responsible for having, a, having built a structure whereby the financial rewards come from top four, um, <coughs> the current, the new nervous system that they bought in by recruiting, you know, the, the director of recruitment from Dortmund, by making sure that Raul Sanlehi joins. But we're talking about overall in terms of recruitment and performance um, and, and conveyancing. We're talking about seven or eight appointments. They haven't been in, in post long enough to make an impact yet. It, that starts now. And therefore, what did we see that you're describing? We saw a manager going, um, I need to lash out the cash to try and make sure that I qualify for the Champions League because that's my nirvana, top four. That's where I get my bonuses. Well, if you want to build a system um, improperly, then you'll get improper decisions to, to sustain it, to prop it up. And, and that's what we're watching at Arsenal. I, I, think, I think Lacazette was a poor signing in the summer. Um, I think what you've seen is, Graham's pointed out, they've, they've brought in new recruitment staff in Sanley and Mislintat. Um, this is the striker that, 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 that Mislintat in particular wanted to sign. So he's signed... He's, come from Borussia Dortmund, he signed a Borussia Dortmund striker and he signed the playmaker who, who provided the highest goal return, I think, of Obama Young's career when he was at, at Borussia Dortmund alongside him. So you've got two different recruitment systems recruiting in one window and then the other and probably Arsene Wenger on the way out at the end of the summer. On Mares, um, I think the situation is... The, the problem that Leicester had there was that... Um, Manchester City came in so late for him, um, for a, a guy who's very important to their team. They felt that they couldn't get a replacement in time and they wanted to be, if they were going to sell him, they wanted to be appropriately compensated and were asking for £95 million as appropriate compensation, which City weren't prepared to go to. I think if City had tried to sign Mares in the summer and done it early, they would have got him. I think if they tried in the summer and not got him then, and then set it up for January in the same way that Barcelona did with Coutinho. They would also have got him because Leicester would have had time to prepare. But, and, but that just underlines the fact that the guy was never first choice. The, the, the player they wanted to sign in the summer was actually the Arsenal player, Alexis Sanchez. Um, one little side point on Mares, which I find fascinating, is that Mares now is uh, represented by Kia Jirabshin, who is an agent who was strongly involved with a lot of the transfers early on in Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City and became a complete persona non grata 
um, over Carlos Tevez and his handling of Tevez and the, the, the famous strike situation, disappearance off to Argentina. It's, it's fascinating to me that Abu Dhabi were prepared to do business with an agent who was effectively blacklisted by the club um, to get a player in quickly for Guardiola. Um, it just, again, emphasises the importance and the power that Guardiola has at that club at the moment to me. Good point. OK, why don't we look at some of, uh, some of the issues uh, Ian raised? Obviously, Arsenal um, are worth talking about. Liverpool are worth talking about. Chelsea and Manchester United are worth talking about. Um, you know, in the, in the list of ideas that we circulated before we started recording this podcast, uh, one of the items was, how shite are Manchester United? So, gentlemen, how shite are Manchester United? The work you put into your preparation, Henry, <laughs> I never ceased to amaze you. As, as Robert De Niro would say, you're good. You're, you're, you're good. <laughs> well, you know, we can double it up and also ask how shite are Chelsea. Obviously, a, a, a very poor result. Um for both sides last night, um, Chelsea. Uh... I, I, to be fair, Henry, I think, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I, I'll choose my words carefully. This current company, but I do, I do think that um, that Mourinho had a point about you know the, the, his players not doing their jobs in the first eleven seconds of the game against Tottenham to concede that goal. Because what we know about Jose Mourinho teams, and indeed about any football team, when you spend three, four days, sometimes seven days, constructing a game plan uh, to play specifically against a, you know, an opponent that you know their strengths and weaknesses, etc., etc. And then four of your players make individual errors which lead to a goal in 11 seconds. That game plan goes out the window. So your entire preparation is gone. And it is very difficult. And I've seen this with so many teams and not just with the elite teams, with teams lots lower down. Um, uh, when Brighton and Hove Albion conceded two goals to Chelsea in the first 11 minutes of their game, uh, some almost two weeks ago, then a game plan to play three stroke five at the back, which has been carefully worked on for an entire week, completely disintegrated before their eyes. Players don't know what to do. The manager is confused. Uh, you end up sending on Mario and Fellani and taking him off after 11 minutes. This is these are the consequences of of that kind of um, situation and circumstance. So, in terms of how poor Manchester United, well, they're not as poor as Chelsea. And in fact, they're not as poor as everyone else because they're still in second place, albeit 12 points behind Manchester City. Or 15 now, maybe, I'm not sure. So, 15. Uh, yeah, 15 now after last night. So, um, that's that's very true. And Chelsea were much more poor than Manchester United were against Tottenham, uh, against the Bournemouth team who have struggled to score goals and yet they score three. And so, it is relevant and there should be some perspective applied in terms of, you know, what's uh, been done and who's been doing it. I think the fact that um, Alexis Sanchez uh, and the fanfare that uh, surrounded, you know, the transfer coup of the century, according to some people, um, by getting them ahead of Manchester City, has put more pressure on Jose Mourinho and Manchester United. Uh, and Sanchez was poor last night. Um, and and you know you can't blame it on one individual player, but but clearly what's happening is that Manchester City, having constructed the squad and the way of playing that they have are accelerating at an alarming pace ahead of every rival, not just some of the rivals. Because normally in the Premier League, we at least have a race to the title which lasts until late March, April, even May. Now, so, it's, it's a procession. 
But let's um, regardless of the his performance last night. Now that the window is shut, are we? Do we consider the Sanchez uh, deal to be the deal of the window? You know, if you look at um, the opportunity cost of getting a footballer who can potentially help take, and I, I genuinely mean help take United to a Champions League win, um, a player that Manchester City um, absolutely patently wanted, and given our discussion about Mares, they thought they needed. At that point, if you have any interest in the well-being of Manchester United or you, you want to watch them, then before you start to factor in their outlay on agent fees and wages, it's a pretty damn impressive deal um, to be able to do it. Um, you and Ian and Duncan, far more than I do, I have to be honest, really care about the, the, the machinations, the figures involved in that. I, I, I just get much more satisfaction um, viewing the, the way in which Sanchez can develop that squad, develop that team. And, and you once him. called him a moronic footballer, didn't you? At the, the, at the stage when he was trying to learn what Guardiola wanted at Football Club Barcelona, um, he had such difficulty. I can't remember, unless you got it in tape, I can't remember if that's the <laughs> insult that I used. I do often use colourful language. <laughs> oh dear! But here's here's my um, perspective on that. Your proposition. He, he's he's distinctly a more experienced, more successful, and more mature uh, man and footballer than he than he was back then. Had he moved to Manchester City, he'd have been playing in a league and in a system which albeit that it's a cousin of what was asked at Football Club Barcelona. There's no Messi, there's no Iniesta, and there's no Xavi. And, and I mean by that, the demands of playing with them, not the opportunities of playing with them. Therefore, I think Alexis Sanchez would have fitted in absolutely perfectly at Manchester City. He did look a, a little kid lost. And I interviewed him a number of times, one-on-one uh, -on -one at uh, Football Club Barcelona. And he was really frank about what, where he saw his own... Um, Deficiencies might be too strong a word, but um, you know weaknesses, things that he needed to develop in terms of his football understanding and his football techniques. So it's it's a it's a fabulous deal if you look at the sideways impact and the potential that it's got. Not for last night at, at, at Tottenham Hotspur, but for you know United are going to beat Seville um, in the Champions League. Uh, either Tottenham or Juventus are going out. Either Real Madrid or Paris Saint Germain are going out. Either Chelsea or Barcelona are going out. City are going through. And if you're an odds maker, then you're telling people in Manchester to book their flights to Kiev, you know, as a punt. And therefore, Alexis Sanchez is, is an extraordinary deal of the market. You, you would have to say um, how how quickly will Coutinho settle at, at Football Club Barcelona? You, you need to ask about that. I think that's one of the ones where I don't think he's going to have uh, likely as much of an impact immediately as Alexis should do at Manchester United because well, he can't well, play in the Champions League. Let, let, me, let me ask Duncan, because you know we, we've, we've outlined this several times in, the, in this podcast, but United have got a list of positions they want to strengthen. And you know we re revealed on this podcast that they, Josie had been given uh, the funds to try and you know target three of those positions in this window. They got one player in. 
So, you know, has this been a successful window for United or a frustrating one? Look, I think I'd go along with Graham in terms of the the quality of player he's managed to get in is above what he expected to be able to do in this window. Um, you've got a, a proven Premier League goal scorer and creator, one of the top players in the division, ready-made slot into the side. Um, so, in terms of impact, deal in the window uh, for the Premier League, yes, I would say so. Well, that doesn't mean it's the best deal. Biggest impact for sure. We'll see which is the best deal. Maybe Lucas Moura, for example, will turn out to be the best deal. Whereas Tottenham have got a guy who should uh, significantly improve their team for a knockdown price, albeit high wages, um, and the kind of player that Pochettino has been trying to get for a long time and not been allowed to. So I'd, I'd put some money on that turning out to be a good deal. Where do Manchester United go from it? Well, I agree with Ian last night. Um, it's a difficult judgment to make because this, they conceded a ridiculous goal inside 11 seconds. They actually looked um, quite good for the next 20 minutes and could easily have equalised, possibly even have gone ahead. Yeah, created a couple of chances and then they, they score a, one of the most spectacular own goals of the season and from 2-0 down against a team like that uh, the chances of coming back are very low um, and the team seemed to know that and Mourinho seemed to know it and it turned into a very dispiriting performance after that. What was interesting for me last night and what's going to be interesting going forward is the, the formation that Mourinho used which was very aggressive for um, away game against an opponent like that. Um, you know, he had Pogba and Matic as his only two proper centre midfielders. As we've discussed many times in this podcast, that's a formation that leaves um, United susceptible defensively. He had Lingard in there, who's not a great tackler, but uh, very good creatively. Alexis given a free roll. Uh, essentially in the left wing, but dropping in a lot into the centre of the park to get the ball, which worked quite well early on. But the negative was it left Ashley Young really exposed at left back and Tottenham were getting a lot of joy down that right side throughout the first half. Um, and I don't know if he can play that formation against um, a top team. Uh, again, I think it, it's too open with the midfielders he's got. I think Pogba needs to have uh, another guy in beside them. I think they need to play four-one-two-three um, if they're if they're going to have Sanchez and Pogba in the same side. So mm. there's, or he's got to get Alexis to do uh, uh, his defensive work um, down the wing rather than internally. So there, there's there's a lot of question marks and things to be mm. solved there. We can't really we shouldn't judge too much in one game because the goals. Um, went in early against them and they were on the back foot. We'll see through the season how it goes. But I agree with Graham in terms of what Alexis can add to the side. And, and I think what I've already seen, um, it, albeit the first game was a, against lower league opposition, the, the kind of inventiveness that Alexis has in his passing and his um, mobility around the front and his positivity definitely has an effect on that team. So... We, we see where it goes from there, but um, it's a plus. It's got, it has to be a plus. I'll just make a quick point on this, Henry, and that is that um, Mourinho, um, as I have known him, know him, um, has prided himself uh, on his man management, and, and, and the, the core of that is making 
players better, improving players. So a good player becomes an excellent player, an excellent bl- uh, player becomes a superstar. Frank Lampard at Chelsea is the obvious example of how he could turn a player from being uh, very good into a serial winner. Now, at some point, even Jose Mourinho has to look at his defence last night and say, can I go away to Tottenham with their creative and goal-scoring abilities with um, Phil Jones and Chris Smalling as my two central defenders? Because those two players for me have been absolute charlatans earning a wage at Manchester United for such a long time when they are clearly not Manchester United class. Clearly not. Um, And, you know, again, if we're talking about deals... Someone, you know, sorry, it was a bid for Johnny Evans late last night from Arsenal was £12 million, which is derisory and derogatory, both to the player and to West Bromwich Albion, considering they're trying to buy their captain. But why Mourinho did not make a bid of £25 million, which have secured Johnny Evans and brought him back to Manchester United, uh, and improve a massive upgrade on both uh, Smalling and Jones in central defence, I do not know. There's something going on there which isn't right, because as Obvious as it is at Liverpool, as obvious as it is at Arsenal, Manchester United's defence is not good enough. And not good enough for Manchester United. They're not going to win trophies uh, playing those kind of players in central defence. So even though Bailly's injured, and I accept that, uh, Lindelof has not had the the best of uh, introductions to English football. He needs to improve. And if you can't field Bailly or Lindelof and you can't trust them, you certainly can't trust uh, Smalling and Jones to keep out a Tottenham attack. It's a good point. And there's two. There's two quick solutions that that Mourinho must be involved in enacting immediately. One is um, don't make the mistakes that you've both identified. That whole idea about he's supposed to be the master of identifying what the opposition do and making sure that everybody is, you know, absolutely a 101 percent of information needed about how to deal with the opposition. And if that's been done, that process has been enacted properly in his normal style then it's the player's fault and they all need a slap around the chops with a wet fish and told to wake up and take their responsibility. The second point is that across the team, but with Alexis in particular, you win the ball back higher and more often and give it away less regularly and minimise... I'm, I'm trying to draw an analogy with, with um, Cruyff, the dream team coach, when he populated his uh, defence with really small players... Um, Chappie Ferrer or um, Eusebio playing it right back and um, them saying boss boss uh, we, we keep losing goals from um, fouls set plays, corners, you don't give away any fouls or, or corners then <laughs> it's, 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 but it's brilliantly simple that's what he told them so <laughs> United have the possibility um, to, to make sure that all their attacking players press better, win the ball back higher and that the controlling players, Duncan talked about the need to change the formation and the responsibility, the responsibility on Matic appears to me, while Pogba is a, a work in progress defensively, is, is absolutely huge. Simply, if you can't, now that the market's closed, solve the defensive inadequacies, um, apart from getting by you fit and before the summer, they press better, win it higher, give it away less. Simple. Well, Liverpool uh, uh, press better and press higher. How do we think their window went, Ian? Well, as I said before, Henry, Virgil van Dijk is clearly an upgrade uh, on centre-halves and also a mystery as to why he was dropped. Um, OK, his defensive header um, in his debut wasn't great, which led to a goal, but 
I don't see the reason why you put him on the bench if he's fit to play and he costs £75 million. Forget the fee. He's just better than Matip. Um, you know, just get him in the team. Obviously, losing Coutinho uh, is not great, but expected. Um, I would have thought, and I would have liked to have thought, that uh, knowing that that was going to happen, that they would have had a plan A, never mind a plan B, on how to replace that creativity. We know they tried Nabi to get Nabi Keita uh, early from RB Leipzig. Uh, unfortunately, you know whatever happened with regards to the negotiations and that, it didn't happen. And so they've left themselves, I think, in a fairly volatile situation for the rest of the season. Um, they still don't have enough quality uh, stroke-confident defenders to keep goals out, as we saw in the dreadful performance against Swansea. Um, so they are uh, liable to concede goals even to smaller, weaker teams, while, of course, the attacking force going forward without Coutinho overcame uh, the great Manchester City and ended their unbeaten run. So they are, you know, they're a bit of a Pandora's box, Liverpool at the moment. Yeah, you don't know what's going to come out. It's probably going to be bad um, when it comes to defending. It'll be very good when it comes to attacking. You're also talking about concepts there in, in response to, to Henry. And if you take just take three of the managers we talk about here routinely, and Ferguson, um, Mourinho, Guardiola, each of them, and people don't listen to Guardiola often enough, I think, when he says this, each of them starts everything um, irrespective of the brand of football they want to play. Each of them starts everything by showing up at the back. Guardiola yeah. has taught from the first day he was a coach until today about wanting to defend well and not just have a good defensive record, but defend well by the right keeper, by the right players, and not just those who can play the ball out, but who are intelligent, um, learn, who who are quick, who are decent in the air as well, and who, when it comes to it, um, will fight for second balls and will challenge everything aerially. We know that Mourinho has that concept um, throughout his teams, and again, not only at the back, but in terms of how everybody defends, and it was patently clear throughout his lifetime that Sir Alex Ferguson, if he didn't have that middle three in the in the back five, the keeper and the two centre halves right, then he would change them and he would go and buy again. And and while we're we're talking about the, the, the transfer market age, it has to be the case that we're we're putting a microscope on clock and not just about this this crap that we get about is he good enough? Should he be sacked? Is there another player? Is another manager has got to come in? we must look at managers in the same light as we look at footballers. How quickly are they learning? In which way are they learning? How are they changing? If they haven't had the deals, like if Naby Keita's not coming in and, and Chan is still there, to what degree can we expect um, Klopp to uh, adapt what he's asking of the team quickly? Is he a good teacher and communicator? Yes, but is he, is he getting the concepts through quickly enough? It, it, the market success... And the way that the players um, hit the ground running or don't, and how the current players blend in with the new one, i.e. Van Dijk in this instance, is is all only a product of how clearly um, any coach, particularly Klopp in this instance, understands what what is fundamental or not. And and at the moment, and also when they bought him, I don't think we're talking about a big surprise. You can completely contrast what Klopp feels about the football he wants to see and has shown since he was a coach compared to the three I've mentioned, at least. There may be others in, in the Klopp camp. Pochettino would be in the in the camp of Mourinho, Ferguson and Guardiola about what's your foundation stone, how pretty you are, how quickly you move the ball, how, how many goals you score, or 
use that to decorate the foundation stone of the defence. And I'm not being critical of Klopp. I'm saying in our analysis, we have to say that he has a currently he, he hasn't adapted enough to the exigencies that face Liverpool if they want to be um, first or second in the in the Premier League or first or second in the Champions League. Have you got anyone in mind when you um, say that Alex Ferguson uh, had some decent defenders? <laughs> Uh, Andy Dornan. Andy <laughs> and if Willie right, Miller is listening, but obviously if if, uh, if if you mean Willie Miller, then I'm willing to say that name. Ralph Milne, surely. <laughs> well, Duncan might be a defender of Ralph Milne, but um, Duncan, what were you about to say? If only Ralph Milne was available now, that would solve the continual replacement problem for Liverpool. He <laughs> <laughs> could have signed United could have signed him instead of Alexis Sanchez. In fact, it would be a much better deal too. Well, once bitten, twice shy. Me think <laughs> they just got their timing wrong with Ralphie, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I think with Liverpool, we've been unfortunately suckered in by Family Sports Group again. I, I recall a few weeks ago in the podcast us praising uh, Family Sports Group for um, putting the money down uh, so aggressively to ensure they got Van Dijk, the defender that uh, Jurgen Klopp wanted, and basically taking them at their word that the money that they were taking for Philippe Coutinho was not being used to pay for Van Dijk and would be spent elsewhere in the team in a replacement. And I, I took them for the word on that because... Uh, I was aware of conversations they'd had with Thomas Lamar heading into the window um, where they basically told Lamar, we want you to come in again uh, as Coutinho's replacement. If Barcelona put the money down for Coutinho, we will move and sign you. Are you happy to come? To which Lamar said yes. Um, So the expectation there was a deal would be done. When Monaco came and asked for the money, they put the price up to 100 million euros and Liverpool, i.e. Fenway Sports Group, said, no, we're not spending that. Um, So, in the end, you have a window where they start off with a a big headline signing that makes the fans happy. Um, They move continual on. They then talk about getting Keita over early. Um, They say throughout it that the money from Coutinho will be spent in the team, but in the end, it's not spent in the team. Klopp has to suffer the consequences of that, and they go through another window making a profit on transfer dealings rather than um, putting net investment into a team which is a great bugbear of Liverpool fans and one which I think is justifiable in this case. Fenway Sports Group are not uh, a... um, financially weak outfit they have the wherewithal to put some significant backing into the club in terms of transfer fees they're not in the same level as Abu Dhabi obviously but what they have provided for the club hasn't been sufficient at certain times when mistakes have been made on previous transfers which is let's face it, very often in the early years of Fenway Sports Group's ownership of the club and those those mistakes need to be fixed. And I think it'll be interesting to watch the dynamic between Klopp and Fenway Sports Group through the rest of the season, given what's, what's transpired in January. There's going to be, there's also going to be a moment when um, either, either if we all do fantasy football right now and just say, it's June and Jan Black is the new Liverpool goalkeeper. When everybody just goes... Ah, yeah, bollocks, of course. 
You know, the Liverpool fans are tearing their hair out, and I take your your point there about Lamar and price and, and strategy and how far thin we're willing to go. That these are these, analytically these are good points. Um, but football, I, I I go back to Duncan that Lamar may give them the creativity because when Ian said you know goals at Swansea, the game I watched that night was a team that was bereft of creative ideas to to do what the Spanish call it. You know the the the, the tin can opener. Who just cuts open the tin can a little bit when everybody's piled back and you're one goal down? They should be able to cope with that. Maybe Lamar would have helped them. Fair enough. But the keeper situation is desperate. And um, if you could snap your fingers and put Jan Black in goal, because let's not say it's going to be De Gea or, or Courtois. Um, but let's say All Black is gettable. Um, Atleti aren't going to bring him trophies and we'll just go, we're, we're absolutely going to nail our colours to the mast and buy that keeper. And he's in the door. After three games, everybody's going to say, "What a, what a much better player Van Dijk looks." Oh, yeah, Gavin's going to work fine now because all black means that not everybody in the back four is wearing brown shorts, and it's just literally impossible to understand why, when there's so much clear evidence that Carius, who I saw playing exceptionally in the first part of the the three three draw, and, and at Sevilla, and Sevilla would have won had it not been for the German keeper that night. It doesn't look as if either keeper is going to dominate the way in which this rejuvenated Liverpool want to do. And I just, I go back to, irrespective of how, um, where they draw their line in the sand that you're talking about financially, but is Lamar, are, are we been taken for suckers? Is 100 million too much? It, will it be a different price in the summer? Blah, 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 blah. These, these are, you know, intelligent, strategic points, and we're right to put a critical focus on Fenway but in the football terms, why why don't they simply go out well, two of our our central back three, this one of the centre halves and the keeper, ain't right. Well, that's true, and and look, it's important to point out here that there's a, a there's a connection between the American owner at Arsenal, the American owner at Liverpool, in that if you look at the net spend for the last two transfer windows, net spend, so money spent, money received. Liverpool's net spend is just ten million pounds. Mm. Or to put that in perspective, that's uh, it is forty-seven point three million pounds less than Brighton Hove Albion, mm. who just got promoted. Arsenal's net spend—they've actually made seven point six million pounds profit in the last two windows, despite breaking their transfer record twice. Mm. Now, there's got to be—I mean—and again, let's contrast that with Manchester City around £191 million net spend, and Manchester United, £127 million net spend. Funnily enough, both those teams are first and second in the Premier League. Now, if we're talking about investing in your club, making your club better, getting the quality that's needed to make you competitive, then clearly Arsenal-Liverpool, despite breaking their own transfer records, are quietly, comfortably, and some would say a little bit sneaky, actually not spending money at all. There, there's a there was a that you're right, that's a fair point, but you you can also uh, twist the kaleidoscope and say, and I know that Fenway phoned the scouting department at Liverpool after Coutinho went and said, Your record about buying us players who do well for us and then we sell for fast profits mean one, you're doing a good job, and two, that we will put faith in your recommendations in the future more and more because you continuously give us players who, who deliver and then we sell for big money. Now, it doesn't make them a selling club, that was just a a hero about the quality of their work. 
But like they are selling quite well, at least in the case of uh, Liverpool, they, they consistently find players that they that they move on for for, for decent fees. Um, quite why Emery Chan is in the position he is, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, and and it's that element of you, you worried a little bit about you know quietly making money rather than winning trophies. It, it, it is that element of that nerve when we're risking a player, when we're buying somebody that nobody else is seeing at 18, 19, 20. What are we doing that for? So that he's here having won nine trophies, 10 trophies by the time he's 27? Or so that he's sustaining us financially with our performance in the Champions League and then we're selling him for 70 million profit when he's 27? I think that's a really big philosophical difference in, in, in terms of some of the clubs. Okay, let's move on because we're running out of time. Um, let's uh, let's quickly look at Chelsea and uh, how this is going to play out because it's not looking great. They have spent money in the window, um, but what's the future hold for Conte? Is it a extremely sh- uh, short term, or will he ride it out till at least the summer? Well, I think the answer, um, Henry, is quite simple. And if results continue to deteriorate the way. Um, that the defeat to Bournemouth this week um, uh, contends, then uh, it's very likely that he won't last the season. <clears throat> the um, caveat for that is um, the decision on who they get in. I still believe Carlo Ancelotti is the first choice, is available and is now resident in London. Um, I know that some other names have been uh, touted. Uh, Luis Enrique, obviously, is one of those. Um, however, I think Roman Abramovich is ready to go back to what he knows uh, and probably shouldn't have discarded the first time. Um, and in that case, uh, Conte is expendable at any moment. I think the fact that uh, they bought uh, a player from Arsenal who could make it into their first team um, says a lot about Chelsea's ambitions in terms of, uh, or, or indeed their faith in the manager, if indeed uh, Conte had anything whatsoever to do with Olivier Giroud's transfer. Um but the fact that you know they were linked with players like uh, Peter Crouch, uh, no disrespect, uh, and Andy Carroll uh, tells its own story. Um, you know they're, they're they're a club which basically has no firm direction at this moment in time. No, um, no one who's able to say this is what our football philosophy is from now and will be going forward, um, because basically. When you sign a striker like Giroud, you're effectively saying we're going to put a lot of crosses in the box and we're going to play more direct. Uh, that wasn't Conte's way when he won the championship last season. Uh, but again, we don't know. Well, we do know who's buying the, the players, and that's Mino Gravskaya, um, the executive director at the club who is in charge of transfers. Uh, and then Emerson Palmieri comes in as well from Roma as a left back. Again, that seems just slightly weird because he's coming in purely as a reserve because, in my opinion, Marcus Alonso, despite playing in a team which has not played to its yeah, great strengths this, this year, is still, I would say, probably the best left wing back in, in Europe. So, again, you spend £23 million on a player who isn't going to play. got to ask yourself the question, who is controlling this? What is, the, what is the actual direction that they think they're going in or they want to go in? Because none of it adds up in terms of a logical and effective policy for Chelsea. Uh, and it all points to one thing which we know already and we've discussed many times in the podcast, which is that Conte will not be the coach next season. OK, um, let's just uh, do a quick fire uh, looking at certain clubs and who are the winners and losers with this. A brief, brief justification 
what you think. I'll just throw them out there and see uh, what you think. Graham, Manchester United. Winners, um, because they are definitely still in contention to win the Champions League, and that has been augmented by the arrival of Alexis. And also, anybody in the broadcasting industry who's listened to this, his name is Alexis, not Alexi. Thank you. <laughs> Ian Everton. Um, <clears throat> winners, definitely. Um, good signings again. Uh, will augment a, you know, a, a quite strong squad. Uh, Tosin will obviously take a bit of time to, to settle in. But uh, his record suggests he will score goals. And I think they win on this, this window. Duncan, Arsenal. I think Arsenal losers. Um, they lost their best player against their will. Um, they lost Theo Walcott, um, who's always been a, a, a solid contributor to the team. They let Giroud go across the city to Chelsea. And I think Giroud um, will help Chelsea. It's um, he's not bad in the sense of the the tall alternative striker that Conte had been looking for, depending on how Conte survives. And Obama Young is a huge gamble. Um, Mkhitaryan is also a gamble, given the player's personality and his kind of his mental fragility. Which um, Arsenal will have to see whether they they can get better out of him in the Premier League than Manchester United. Okay, Graham Chelsea. Yeah, but judging by Conte's pre-season prediction. And judging by what they brought in, not enough. So I'm going to have to say I fear losers. And if that's enough to inspire them, the gods of football, to come to the camp now and knock Barcelona out in February and March, then so be it. Ian, Liverpool. Losers. They sold the best player and acquired one centre-half for half the money, almost, that they sold their best player for. Um they should have invested in more defenders and certainly got a replacement for Coutinho. Duncan, Manchester City. I, as ever, winners. Um, <laughs> it's not hard to be the winner when you spend more money than anyone else has ever done in the history of the game. Okay, I'm Barcelona. Can we just say, sorry, Henry, that there are as yet undiscovered tribes in the Amazon <laughs> basin who knew Duncan was going to say that. <laughs> How small do they have to be all getting one basin? <laughs> <laughs> Awful clean folk, They're, pygmies. Though, aren't they? they're really clean folk, though. I do love that about them. Um, Go on, Barcelona. The, the obvious thing to say there, H, is that Barcelona um, are, are very big winners in that they have bought an extremely high-quality footballer who's going to fit in with their... Uh, system, Coutinho, and I don't think that will necessarily be evident automatically. He's got a lot of learning to do, and there will be some moments of imbalance, the same as when Thierry Henry was added to Eto and Messi and um, Idago Johnson and Ronaldinho in 2007-8. Everybody said, oh, extra good player, extra good, isn't always the case. But Yeri Mina is very, very important. The move from Mascherano out and the need not to be absolutely relying on Vermaelen, who does carry a big injury profile. Yuri Mina in and Coutinho in, with Mascherano being you know, sold for decent money. Other players have been moved out, reducing the salary burden. Overall, Barcelona are definitely winners. OK, Ian, last one, and a bit more specific on this one. Glasgow Celtic still have Moussa Dembele. Are they, does that mean they're winners, or does that mean they're losers? And why is he still there? Still there because the um, the player uh, didn't want to move to to anyone who was interested. Uh, Brighton obviously were were there, so were West Ham interested. And um, look, I, the only person 
um, who can make uh, that into a winning situation is Dembele and Brendan Rodgers. The player clearly isn't uh, playing at his capacity that we know. I know he's had some niggling injuries, etc. But, look, his career is somewhere else. It's not at Celtic. Everyone knows that he needs to score goals, most importantly, probably in the Europa League, um, but also in the SPFL. And then that way he will get the move that he wants in the summer. Okay, gents. Uh, thanks for joining us, Graham. Um, do you want to do us a little, uh, give yourself a little plug on your own personal private podcast? Um, that was very Depeche Mode. Um, and I can almost <laughs> take you wrong. People always say about me. It doesn't scan so well, private podcast. <laughs> All I want to know before I plug anything else, which will be Celeste Ferdinand and his helicopter, um, which you can actually hear on, on the big interview if you want to become a socio. It's a brilliant long interview with Celeste, um, my life in Turkey, my life coping with racism, and my life as a helicopter pilot. Rather than plug that, um, what I'd like to know is this has been all very well for part one of this podcast, but when do we put parts two and three? Because, um, you know, brevity has been all very well, but, you know. You think this has uh, been an example of brevity? <laughs> well, I would have thought verbosity might be more appropriate. That was an example of sarcasm which didn't fly too well in your uh, particular age. I, 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 I said, well, I'm right now. I'm, I'm, I'm always in dark. You've just sent my way. What? Let, let's uh, let's do part two whenever you like. I'm part three. I'm sure our audience would be delighted to get you back as often as possible. Do, do you know what? Do you know, Henry, when people say about the, the league title, it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> Snickers. I think it's called Snickers now. It's a Snickers, not a sprint. Exactly. It's a Snickers, not a sprint. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Branding right. Right. Well, if he doesn't want to plug it, I'll tell you. It's two ninety nine um, for Graham's private personal podcast on. Patron, as far as I'm aware, um, and uh, you know, money well spent. Thank you to Duncan, thank you to Ian, and uh, our regular guest, um, Graham you Hunter. That, you take that back. <laughs> Quite irregular in oh, so many ways. Um, thanks for listening. We're, uh, we're the Transfer Window Podcast. The window's closed, but we are still open for business. You can find us on Audioboom. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on uh, some other ones whose names I can't remember, but you can find us somewhere or other, and we hope that you do. Toodaloo, the new. Seamless, seamless as ever, Henry. <laughs> Unbelievable. You can find us on other places that I've no idea where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> we're still recording this, and I'm leaving it in.